When the Chama Leibowitz was in her 70s, she was on her. She had just finished a class, and she had a 20-minute break before her next class. And a student went up to her and says, "Can we talk now? I have a question." And he says, "No, I need my 20 minutes. I get very, very nervous and excited before I teach a class, so I need my quiet." And I thought that's an amazing story of a teacher who's been teaching for 50 years, and she says, before I teach a class. That's a sign of greatness. I don't think I'd be exaggerating if I would say perhaps I was one of Nechama Leibowitz's youngest students. Anyone here go to Mahon Gold? So I don't know if you remember, in Mahon Gold in the 70s, Nechama Leibowitz would teach. In 1977, my mother would take me, I was... Six, seven years old, my brother was nine years old, to hear Nechama Leibowitz's weekly class on Kabbalah, at after Kabbalat Shabbat in Machon Gold Shul. I didn't understand anything she said, but we sat there. I give a lot of credit to my mother, who understood the greatness of Nechama Leibowitz, and that there is value of bringing these two children to hear her, even if, well, my brother did understand, even if I didn't understand anything. And that's when I was, even though I didn't understand, I was exposed to her great character. And 20 years later, I would, me and my husband would name our daughter Nechama for Nechama Leibowitz. Nechama Leibowitz is definitely a significant personality in, in, my, in my life. And uh, over the next hour, I hope to share with you what made Nechama into Nechama. And what made Nechama Leibowitz into the great teacher she was, was not just her teaching, it was her personality. Nechama's personality was radiant, warm, full of excitement, full of curiosity, a great sense of, hum- of, of humor, honesty, humility, a love to Torah, a love to Rashi, a love to her students, and love to human beings in general. Um, before we go into Nechama's methodology, I, d- I want to talk just for a few minutes about Nechama's greatest contributions to the world of Torah. I'm tempted to declare Nechama is one of the most influential teachers of Tanakh in Jewish history. Definitely one of the top five teachers of Tanakh in Jewish history. Tanakh was always studied from the time Torah was given. Tanakh, Torah was studied and so on, Nevi'im and Ketuvim. But Tanakh created a revolution where men, women, children, laymen, university students, farmers, academics, all walks of life have developed a great thirst to learn. This is unprecedented. Nechama was far from being a feminist. But the women's revolution really begins with Nechama and Sarashnir. Nechama's revolution and contribution begins from her famous Gilyonot that some of you might be familiar with. But just for the sake of those who are not familiar with their Gilyonot, Nechama would send out source sheets. I want to read one minute in Hebrew, and then I'll paraphrase in English, how these question sheets, weekly Parsha question sheets that she would send out, how they begun. And she says this at the celebration of 10 years of Gilyonot, 10 years of Gilyonot, when she celebrates 520 Gilyonot that were sent out. I'll tell you, she wrote eventually close to 2,000 Gilyonot. Okay, 
החלטתי אז לשלוח להן מדי שבוע גיליון מתוך פרשת השבוע, בו שאלות הדורשות עיון, הסתכלות בדברי התורה ובמפרשיה. The Gileon project originally had began to benefit 14 young women, students who came to learn with Nechama for six months. And when they all were returning after the six months to their work on kibbutzims, these women expressed a great desire to, to continue their learning. And Nechama reassured them that she would send them these weekly, source, these weekly parcher sheets with questions, and they could send her answers. Eventually, these Gileonot became worldwide. And she, she would start out with getting 14, hundreds and thousands, and she would check them all. The only thing that she asked is, when you send back your sheet, she would correct it, just send back an envelope and a stamp. In a speech that Nechama delivered, in honor of the 10 years, she, she describes the following. Slowly, slowly, the circles of participants expanded. Workers, teachers, kindergarten school teachers, farmers, nurses, seamstresses, soldiers, students. An honorary mention of a young soldier who writes, who writes in pencil and not in pen and apologizes for lack of ink by his tractor. And a young soldier from the Coast Guard during World War II who asked for help in question 27 and signs off this sheet in the name of the entire army unit. And then there's some sad uh, memories that she records. She says, when she received the question from, from a young man who says, Please first address this question, which one of our friends had asked last, this Shabbos, Parashat Bo, and the following day he went with the with voyage of supplies to Yerushalayim that was under siege and was killed. We owe him to have an answer for his question. And here, there's the carpenter that arrives at my doorstep, Nechama writes, half an hour before Shabbos, says, I can't come into Shabbos without an answer to this question. And, uh, and the painter that comes in and says, Is there someone here by the name Nechama? These are the people that Nechama gets to meet over her years of teaching. And that's one great contribution. The other contribution is the exposing the Jewish people to a mass amount of commentators. Nechama familiarized Am Yisrael with unfamiliar commentators. Nechama exposed the people to really an unbelievable amount of commentaries. Commentators were always studied. However, the learned pe- even the learned people generally studied the commentators that appeared in the Mikrot Dolot. Rashi, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, Rashbam. They were not familiar with those that were not printed in that one book. Nechama exposed people to the world of Parshanut. Ralbag, Abarbanel, Atbal, Akedat, Yitzchak. Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kaspi, I cannot tell you how many times I've mentioned Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kaspi, and I would have a student say, I know him, he's mentioned in Nechama Leibowitz's books. And modern uh, Parshanim, Kasuto, Rabbi Tzvi Hoffman, Parshanim that did not appear in Hebrew, which she would translate. Beno Yaakov, who actually was a reform rabbi, and that's one of the reasons Nechama might not have been so much in the consensus, but she, she Nechama always taught, Kabel Ha'emet Mi Misha Amara, If someone brings a good perush, whether he's Jewish or not, whether he is, believes in Torah Mina Shamayim or not, the perush is a good perush, and we, she, she will not uh, refrain himself from quoting. Shemshem Rafael Hirsch's perush was not quoted in the time when Nechama quote, was not translated into Hebrew. It was still in German. And she quotes him, brings her father's translation. His father had his own translation, and she quotes him. She also teaches us the names of many of the parshanim, the name of Kliakar, Rabbi Ephraim Lushins. She, oh, people that are not familiar, she wants us to become familiar with these great scholars. And if that alone was her truma, Dayenu. 
But as I said, today we're going to focus as, on Nechama's methodology as a teacher. A teacher has a methodology to achieve the goal. Let's just start out with Nechama's goal in teaching Torah. I'll read in Hebrew and then paraphrase in English. Matratenu hi laharbot ahavat Torah. Sheyihiyu divrei ha-Torah yekarim v'chadivim al halomed. Sheyirei et ha-or ha-gadol hanugei mi-parshaneinu u-mazriach et ha-psukim. Sheyicham lev talmideinu le-oram. The goal of Torah is to increase, the goal, goal of learning is to increase the love of Torah so that the words of the Torah will be cherished by the learner in order that he sees the great light shining from our commentaries and glowing from the verses, warming the hearts of our students in their light. This was Nechama's goal, to warm the students' hearts in the light of Torah. And now we will see how her methodology achieved this goal. Number one of her methodology, rule number one is no pain, no gain. Ein ahava lelo etgar. In order to love a subject, one has to love, one has to work. Love to any subject cannot be achieved without toil, without challenge. Nechama strongly believed that the love of Torah is developed by the intellectual challenge. A bored student will show very little interest in the subject. During Nechama's class, not a single student can remain passive. The mind was constantly working. Nechama would never open a class by saying, okay, today we'll study the story of the Akedah. I'll begin by reading the chapter. She would say instead, as I read the chapter of the Akedah, please note the different adjectives that Yitzhak is described. She would always give an assignment, always make sure that the mind is constantly working. When she asked a question in class, she would have every student write down the answer in their sheet so there shouldn't be a case that a student is not working and then why does anybody remember her walking down and everybody's everybody's really worried about her as she approaches and she writes says told lot of Nechama always demanded the, an assignment that oh, always demanded an assignment that required thinking one could not daydream for a single moment Nechama did not lecture Nechama took you on an intellectual roller coaster Nechama resented the style of lecturing emphatically and believed that the student mind must constantly be engaged. And one more quote from Nechama. A boring class might leave the student with the mistaken impression that Tanakh is boring. Therefore, it is our obligation to direct all of our didactic skills and abilities and gather our methodological means to avoid passivity, lack of participation, and general slumber. Another, another point in her methodology was to teach preciseness. As thought of the thinking process, she demanded of her students to be exact. Commentaries have, as we said, have always been studied, and from the time they were, they've been written, Jews have studied Ramban, Ibn Ezra, and Rashi. But the common Jew did not really study Rashi. The way that this Rashi was studied was the Taich. You just rambled it over. You knew what Rashi said, but not always. What did Rashi really mean? Saul Lieberman, when granted Nechama a prize in memory of his wife Yehudit, described Nechama as the one who created a scientific discipline of the study of Parshanut commentaries. Surely we'll demonstrate this discipline. It is the difference between a musician who's sitting in, a, in an orchestra and a layman. A layman just hears a nice piece of music. When a musician hears 
Ed Symphony, he recognizes every single piece, every single key, every single instrument. It is a fine-tuned listening. And that's what Nechama taught her students, to fine-tune your listening, to train them to listen. In addition, Nechama loved argument. Nechama believed in for, the, in, for the sake of argument, she believed that a good study required students to argue with them. And in this aspect, Nechama goes back to the way the Gemara is taught. Nechama really turned Tanakh and Parshanut to a study of a Daf Gemara. So Nechama, that was her style of teaching. The question she raised always demanded deep textual analysis, discussion, argument, and proof. What we, we refer to as Shakla Vitaya. She had zero tolerance to questions like, what did Rashi say? And she would always cynically say, well, those of you who are students, I don't need to hear from you what Ra- in your un- inarticulate Hebrew what Rashi said so eloquently. And her question would always be to fine-tune Rashi. What is the difference between what Rashi and Ramban are saying? Or what is the difference between Rashi's two perushim? Which commentary seems more correct to you? It was always very important to hear the student's evaluation. She strongly held that the argument are crucial for the sake of internalizing the material. In an article that was found after her death, and there were several articles that were found in her house that she never published after her death, she describes her experience as a, as a young teacher teaching young women. And she says, young women like to argue, like to discuss. It is important to take that, that argument and use it in the classroom. And she brings several examples. One of the examples she brings in the article is in the story of the war of David, when David and Absalom, David has to fight against Absalom, and as the armies are going out, David HaMelech tells, tells the three generals, Le'atli banar Absalom, be, be, be easy on him. And then she says, I would bring this to the class. Is this a legitimate request? And she, and with great excitement, she describes in the articles what this one says. Of course, it's his son. And a father's obligation comes first to his son. And then someone else says, yes, but it is his son who betrayed his, his father. And so on and so forth. Bring the argument. When the Hamatat one actually felt the presence of the commentators in the classroom. It was no less than the resurrection of the dead. The Parshanim were alive. We had to defend the Ramban. We had to understand Adarbanel's motivation. Sometimes we accepted Rashi just because his words were so, so deep spe- speaking to the, deeply speaking to the heart. In a well-known passage, Rav Soloveitchik describes a childhood experience uh, where he imagines the he, where he imagines the Rambam and the Rivet all in a room. I took this passage and I paraphrased it to the experience of Nechama's small, tiny dining room on Rehov Hatzvi Eser behind the old Tachanah Merkazit. So, it's the Bob's words that are adapted to Necham Leibowitz, who Necham Leibowitz had a great admiration to Rav Salvechik, and she quotes him a great deal in her Iyunim. The relationship between, all of, between us all is personal. Rashi on our right, Ramban on my left, Rashi sitting at the head of the table, providing commentary, Ramban asking tough questions, the Gur Arya, the super commentary of Rashi, defending Rashi. They are all in the little living room on Rechov Hatzvi, sitting around the small table. They look at us fondly, playing with us with trains of thought and Tanakh. 
encouraging us and strengthening us. Torah study is not just a didactic activity. Torah study is not limited to formal technical matters realized through invention and exchange of information. It is an awesome experience of befriending many generations, coupling spirits together, uniting souls as ones. Those who passed on the Torah and those who are receiving it rendezvous at a historical roadside in on Rehov Ten. This was the experience of studying with Nechama. For Nechama, there was a great value in learning for, in order to create values. Not just learning to find out the information, but to instill strong values. Nechama did not appreciate excessive obsession with grammar. Many times she'll refer to Rajabam and Ibn Ezra as Rodfei Hapshat, those who are too much uh, after the pshat and miss the big picture. Perhaps better phrase, Nechama can tolerate grammar, ish, grammatical issues, as long as it doesn't diminish in the spiritual experience of learning Torah, or as long as the grammar is not a means to it is a means to an end, and that it provides the reader with a uh, a moral aspect. Some, va- some value that will touch his heart. I want you to look and source one of your source sheets. And this is Nechama's words in her introduction, in her introduction words to Parashat Hazinu. Parashat Hazinu, which is all poetry, is a parashat that's full, every other word is a difficult word. M- many of the words are hepatzlagomnas, words that appear only one time in Tanakh. It could be a very tedious parsha. And at the introduction words to Parsha Tazinu, she writes as follows. It's in source number one, which I will read and then paraphrase. In general, in my books of Iyunim studies, I do not try to, uh, to go on and on about the, the preciseness of the word. Limud Parashat Hashavua, Vechen Kol Limud Torah, Asurlo Lehafech, she very much resented it on full articles about uh, one letter. It says, its study of Parashat Shavuot should not be the study of grammar. However, in order to understand the full picture, you do at times have to understand the grammatical, the, the, the individual word. It is crucial at times to understand the grammar the exact grammar, and to be, excess, to be excessive about it in order to understand the big picture. However, ah, it should be clear, to both students and teachers, understanding the words is not the goal. It is a means to an end to understand. It is to, the goal is, Understanding Torah, the big picture, that Bekutba. And I want us to start out by seeing a beautiful example and open up your Tznachim here, and open up to Bereshit, chapter 29, Perak Chavtet, when Yaakov is at the house of Lavan. Perak Chavtet. I'll start reading from Pasuk Chava, verse 26. After Yaakov accused Lavan, why did you deceive me? Lavan responds, Vayomer Lavan, lo ha'bchira, Where we come from, we do not switch the younger, the younger for the older. 
מלא שבוע זאת, וניתנה לך גם את זאת בעבודה אשר תעבוד עמדי. מלא שבוע זאת. will be seven years. Does anybody have an English translation? If anybody has an English translation, you'll, you'll use them. It will become very helpful. Nechama very much liked using translations. She would bring several German translations of the Tanakh. And the word we're going to be focusing on is the word Malesha Boazot for the next seven years. V'nitna lecha gam etzot. What does the word V'nitna lecha gam etzot mean? What does this word mean? So let's look inside. In your source sheets, you have Tarshanim. Okay, I, I, so I, there, that appears in the Parshanus. We won't be able to get into it. There's, whether it's seven days or seven years. Rashi. Let's read Rashi on your source sheets. V'nitna l'shon rabim k'mo nisrefa v'nivale avzot l'shon v'nitan. What does v'nitna mean? L'shon rabim. It's plural. Why is Rashi saying that? Because there's two ways of understanding the word v'nitna. Vinitna means, can mean in the third person, female third person, she will be given. That's Vinitna. Or it could mean the plural second person. We will give her. So Rashi says Vinitna here is the plural. It's not talking about her. Read Rashbam underneath. She will be given. So Vinitna can either mean, and if I ask about your translations, I'm sure some have this and some of that. Either she will be given or we will give. Then Ramban explains Rashi. Ramban. Rashi doesn't explain if it is the plural. Why is Lavan talking in the plural? And Ramban tries to explain Rashi. What we would call the royal we. When, ya, when Lavan says, we will give, he really means, I will give, but he speaks in the royal we. So there's two perushim here. This seems like a technical grammatical issue. Is Vinitna, Rachel will be given, she will be given, or is it we will be given? Now let's go to Ramban. He brings Ibn Ezra. V'hanachon be'enai. Ki divrei lavan be'orma amar le'yakov. Lo ye'aseken b'mkomeinu. Ki lo ye'nichunu anshei hamakom la'asotken. Ki nevalahu etzlam. Aval temale shvua zot. V'niten lecha ani v'chol anshei hamakom. Gam etzot. Shekulam naskim badavar. V'naase lecha kavod u'mishte. What is Ramban saying here? Ramban saying it, it when he says when Lavan says Vinitna, it is the plural. And it's not the plural, the royal we. It is Lavan saying me and the community. And what Lavan is saying, I can't, you know, if it was me, I would give it to you. But it's not me. I have a whole community. And here's what Nechama writes on this. I'll read it out. You don't have your sheets. I'll read it out. Nechama points out that the Ramban is not simply explaining the word here. Ramban teaches us an important lesson. One of the characteristics and signs of a wicked man, he says, is the man that splits himself into two. The personal I who does good and is acceptable and pleasant in the eyes of his friends 
and the I, which is but a cog in the anonymous public machine, be it the state of which he is but a functionary and a servant, or the army, what a... What blame can therefore be attached to him? He personally did not commit this offense. Ramban shows us that even in the uncomplex society of Lavan and his town, the evil instinct prompted man to hide behind the shoulders of the community and shirk responsibility. Am I to blame? Was it me who failed to keep my promise? Of course, had it been me, I would have kept my promise. And Hama concludes, we have seen from the Ramban how a decision in a small grammatical point can have such all-important moral implications. The grammatical question cannot be divorced from that of content and idea. They are all part and parcel of teaching Torah and require study. So there was always, the discussion always had to lead to something of value. Now this idea here of responsibility is something that comes up Oh, in almost every single parsha of Nechama. Man's responsibility, community responsibility, and a very nice example of this is was in last week's parsha, Parashat Matot. Open up to Bamidbar, chapter 31, Paraklamid Aleph, verse 16. This is when the people go to fight the Midianites. And they come back with some spoils of women. And Moshe says, why did you bring all these women back? These are the women that seduced Am Yisrael according to the plan of Bilam. Nechama points out here, if you look in number three, after the quote of the Pasuk, Nechama points out that in Parshat Matot is the first time we find, the reader finds out that seducing the Israelite men was Bilam's plan. We do not know that in Parshat Balak. We do not know that in Parshat Pinchas. We only find out after Am Yisrael sinned, after they were punished, only then do we find out that this was all part of Bilam's plan to seduce them. And the Chama says, ask the following, Why do I be told this only at the end and not before the Am Yisrael sinned? And he, she writes that there is a great message in the way the Torah chooses to structure ideas. Had it been written before, what would Yisrael say? It wasn't our fault. Whose fault was it that we sinned? It was Bilam's fault. He seduced us. It wasn't ours. And then the last two lines of number three. What, what, an individual is responsible for his sins and he cannot excuse himself by saying it wasn't my fault Bilam seduced me and that's why the Torah will write it but not before they sinned not, no way can we absolve Am Yisrael of their responsibility and as I said this is an idea that repeats itself over and over again 
If any of you recall, Nechama Leibowitz teaching the story of the vineyard of Navot. When um, Ahab comes home all depressed because Navot refuses to sell him the, his vineyard. He comes home and he, his wife Yisabel says, why are you so depressed? And he says, well, Navot refuses to sell me. So what does Yisabel say? Don't worry. I'll take care of it. And Nechama opens her large eyes and says, and Ahab doesn't ask what exactly do you plan on doing and that's her way of saying Ahab is equally responsible for whatever happened to Navot another large part of Nechama's methodology is what we call the actualization of the material the truth is this uh, Actualization of the material is not in the consensus of whether Nechama uh, was in favor or not. They are those that strongly hold that Nechama, that Nechama felt that the commentator was clear of any external historical motivations and all the commentator had in front of him was the text. Whether or not Nechama held of that, the fact is, I, I, we will see today, Nechama clearly does an actualization of the material. She understands the material that she reads based on her experiences. And she understands many times commentaries based on the commentary's experience. And we'll see, if, if any of you recall, when Nechama teaches Parashat Shemot, and she goes through the Ramban of how the, they, they go from one, how they outsmart Am Yisrael. They start with, um, with first of all by uh, demoralizing them and then making them to foreigners and she's clearly talking about Germany 1938 and, and onwards. Nechama clearly did an actualization of the material so, um, so we'll divide this into two. One is how she reads the commentaries and understands commentators based on their time and then she herself, how she understands the text based on certain experiences that she is undergoing. So if you look in source number four, a quote from Sefer Yechezkel. When Yechezkel tells the people who are in exile, That which crosses your mind will not happen. You think that you will become like all nations and be idol worshippers? By my, by my word, Against your will, you will remain part of Am Yisrael. Against your will, you will be part of Am Yisrael, whether or not you want. And then she quotes Abarbanel. This prophecy, Hanivuazot, is a atzumamod, is a great prophecy, which one, Abarbanel says, Ra'ula tetalealev, kiruba kara otanu. We've seen, Abarbanel in 1942 says, these prophecies, we've seen these fulfilled. Jews say, we will want to become like idol worshippers, and they, they do, cannot. Vira'inu ba'aboneinu bagalut hamarvanim harazeh. We see we are, is Christianity. We see we are living amongst the Christians, and we see the fulfillment of this nevuah. Shalonit kama. This was not fulfilled in Babel. Ella begalut rom yashar anachnu bo. She bnei Israel mitnei tsarot hagzerot vashmadot bnei Israel because of all of the decrees against them and the inquisition. 
leave Judaism and they think they can be like all the all other nations and they think that God will um, just they'll just leave God's uh, hashgacha and they will succeed as uh, if they become another nations and against all these Jews the Navi says you will become you will remain Jews whether or not you want it I'm going to the next page. I'm just going to the last four lines that are in bold. These words, uh, Nechama writes, the bold words are in, the, are in, Nechama, are in Nechama's um, words. Eile hadvarim. Ketavam abarbanel bitkuvat ha'inkvizitia. Were written by the abarnel during the Inquisition in the time when the, the Muranos were, were uh, persecuted. Bizman shehu chachsha britchen nichrat anneklat on the cloud too far, when it's the, when it's clear that the covenant between Am Yisrael and God remains eternally, and any attempt to try to leave Am Yisrael will not help. This is how Abarbanel read the Psukim and the Nevi'im, as though they were all talking to him, to his generation, to actions that are happening within the Jews of Spain. Ha'im lo writes Nechama right after the Holocaust. Is this not? So Nechama clearly understood both Parshanim, they're talking from their experience, and her own experience. In Moranavu, in the, she quotes Amor Nebuchim in, in, in the source sheet that she sends out on Parshat B'Shalach. And she asks the famous question that the Parshanim asks, and Ibn Ezra addresses, how can we explain a nation of three million people are standing at the sea and they're afraid of six Hundred Egyptian horsemen, and she quotes the uh, the the Rambam, and the Rambam says that it is not it's the slave mentality. Let's just read the Rambam that she quotes. A person who was a slave his entire life cannot just then lift up a rifle and start fighting against these great nations. And that's why they have to go around, not, not Deborah Herod's police team. And the Hama goes on to explain, and she likes to explain this, um, a person just can't come and wash his hands from the dirt and, and begin to fight for his independence. And then she writes, this comes to express it's the fact that is well known to our generation. Jews that came out of the, of the concentration camps cannot just come and fight. It is not always easy. The ammunition itself cannot work if you do not have the spirit of fighting. And it is something that is so obvious, she writes. Davar muvan lador hazeh. And the one third example, third and last example of actualizing the material is parashat, also Parashat Matot that we read. It talks about Ruvain and God, which want to ask us to, re, to, to remain on Eve Hayarden Hamizrahi. She writes the following introduction. She says, Every single parsha and every single chapter in the Torah was not just given to that generation, it was given to all generations. 
But in every generation, we have a different understanding of different parashot. Ulam bechol dor vador, bechol dor acharot in a parashot amidabrat alav. Certain parashot that were significant 400 years ago are less meaningful to us now. And certain parashot that were not significant 600 years are very meaningful now. A parashat that was not clear a few hundred years ago. This chapter, she says, of Reuven and God, is clearer to our generation than to any other generation before in Jewish history since the time the chapter took place. And um, a, a, an interesting story I heard about this, uh, about this uh, Rivka Bash, I don't know if you've heard Dr. Benny Gesundheit. So his sister, Rivka Bash, um, told me that she was, she, she was in charge of groups of Bnei Akiva that came to Israel. And she had asked Nechama to speak to them. And Nechama said, well, she, she'll speak in Hebrew. So Rivka said, but they, they don't speak Hebrew. So she told Rivka, fine, I'll speak in Hebrew and you'll translate. And it was Parashat Matot. And she's speaking about the story of Ruvain and God. And she's letting out all of her wrath about the, those tribes who chose to stay and not join the forces of Am Yisrael. And Rivka needs to translate to these women who came to visit Israel. And she, Necham is using harsh words. So Rivka says, I, I, I tried to add in. I just made it a little bit more, more pleasant on the ear. I didn't use the harsh words. And every time I mistranslate, Necham says, Lo kachamavti. The actualization of the material of, of the material was not just as far as reading it in a certain way according to the generation, but also in the different pieces of material, the sources, the regard with the resources that you would bring to enhance the class. In addition to the hundreds, and literally hundreds of commentators that she quoted, Nechama would bring a large variety of modern sources that would shed light on the, on the unit that was studied. For example, in the, when she teaches the story of Joseph and his brothers, she refers to, she tells the teacher and the student, it would be wise to open up to the book of Thomas Mann, this 1,000 page novel, and read these 50 pages to help to understand. When she reads the Pasuk, that the brothers, when the brothers are in Egypt and say, we are guilty for not listening our brother cry. She refers the reader to the cry of Joseph in the pit that Thomas Mann writes. It says, the Torah doesn't tell us what Yosef cried. But if you want to help use your imagination, read what he says. It was a question she actually described that she taught and she was once teaching in kindergarten. And she asked the children, what do you think Yosef said in the pit when he was in the pit? So she says, one child says, wait till I get home and tell Abba what happened. And one child says, um, just let me out. I'll do everything you want. I'll polish your shoes. And one child says, litrot bimitzayim. <laughs> Says, um, so she, she'll, she'll quote a poem of Bialik, and she'll refer to there Dostoevsky. And these are things that really, really enhance the uh, the classroom, enhance the studies here. Um, I want you to look at source number seven here regarding the prohibition to withhold wages. 
לא תעשוק את רעך ולא תגזול, לא תלין פעולת שכיר איתך עד בוקר. You should not withhold your wages of the person who worked for you until morning. And the pasuk repeats itself in Sefer Devarim. לא תעשוק שכיר אני ואביון מאחיך ומגרך אשר בארצך ובשעריך ביומו תיתן שכרו ולא תבוא עליו השמש כי אני הוא ואליו הוא נושא את נפשו ולא יקרא לך אל השם והיה בך חטא. So the, these two psukim are both talking about withholding wages. Now whenever two psukim refer to the same mitzvah, Rashi immediately is going to say we cannot have two psukim just repeating the same thing. Each of them must have meant something different. So let's see Rashi, Ad Boker. V'sachir yom hakatuv medaber. The Pasuk in Vayikra is talking about a worker who worked during the day. A worker who worked during the day, you are obligated to pay his salary from sun, between sunset to the following morning. You have 12 hours to pay. And then Rashi goes on to say the Pasuk in Devarim is talking about a night worker. A night worker, you're obligated to, to pay his salary between sunrise until sunset. In other words, each one, a night worker, you have 12 hours and a day worker, you have 12 hours. That's Rashi's commentary. Ramban, at the end of page 2. ביומות ייתן שכרו. על דרך הפשט, ביאור, ממה שנאמר בתורה, לא תלין פעולת שכיר איתך עד בוקר. רמב"ן says, this is not two different הלכות. This is not two different cases. רמב"ן says, it's not that safer ויקר is talking about a day worker and safer דברם is talking about a night, a night shift. It says, safer דברם is elaborating on safer ויקר. Safer דברם is telling you that you have to pay him during the day. You cannot wait even tonight. It's just to explain to us the halachot. Biyomoti tens charom, meaning the man that worked for you during the day, what do you have to do? That day you have to pay him. Be'ur lo talin, ki derech haktuvim ladaber v'hoveh, ve'amin hag l'iskor ha'poel biyom echad v'la'erev, hu yotzeh terem bo ha'shemesh. He says this is just, you hire someone generally during the day, and you have to pay him as soon as he finished working. You don't have these 12 hours. And then the Chama goes on, just uh, since we're talking about being precise, what is the difference between the methodology of Rashi and Ramban? So the answer would be the me- difference in methodology, according to Ramban, according to Rashi, we'll start with Rashi, no pasuk repeats the same thing. According to Ramban, the pasuk is, you can't, that's the way people talk, they sometimes repeat themselves, and psukim, uh, this pasuk does repeat it, and just elaborating, what is the halakhic difference? According to Rashi, you have 12 hours to pay compensation. According to Ramban, You don't have any hour. You have to pay as soon as one completed his work. After this, after this entire thing, she writes, Me'anyen, it is interesting that in the law of the Knesset of year 1915, in the state of, sorry, 1955, in the state of Israel, Ein hakpadag dolakolkach, It is interesting to note, it's on page 3 towards the beginning, and she quotes the law of the Knesset, Seif Stein, a salary should be paid by the employer no less than 6 o'clock of Thursday of the week that he worked in. And to which Nechama says, in other words, if a person worked on Sunday, he would get paid by Thursday. And Nechama writes, That if a worker works on Sunday or Monday, the employer can pay him 
up until Thursday at 6 o'clock. And she writes about the law of the state of Israel. Zelolifi Rashi, Zelolifi Ramban. But she made it very much alive, the, the text, and really, really applied it to um, her time. And she talks about, in year 1955, people needed that salary. And, the, and she criticizes the Knesset and for, for doing this. Um, Nechama had a, um, a really an exceptional skill in bringing Midrashim. Nechama was a, it was an, a very a great advocate of Midrashim. She would know what type of Midrash to bring, when to bring a Midrash, how to read a Midrash. And said you have to what what type of Midrash. She had a whole article that describes when do you bring a Midrash to class, how to read a Midrash in class. Uh, I remember in a classroom with her, there was a very big argument between uh, teachers and, and Nechama, the teachers and themselves, whether or not Midrashim should be studied. I think now we're in the post-Midrash era. But in, and whether or not Midrashim should be studied in the classroom. And of course, the teacher says, no, if you teach Midrashim, the students don't know what's Pshat, they don't know what's Medrash. And Nechama says, says, let me tell you a story, a taxi driver story, of course. Um, of Nechama. So I was driving, uh, taking a taxi one day, and the taxi driver says, Ma'atosa. Says, Ani Mora. What do you teach? Ani Mora Tanah. Says, Ah, I'll tell you a story. And some of my students know this story. I'd like to tell you a story. Says, You see this um, big scar I have on my arm? So Nechama says, Yes. Says, Well, I was in the, um, in the Yom Kippur War. I was down in, uh, in the Suez Canal. And our tank was hit. And as soon as it got a hit, three of us managed to get out. As we're running, I noticed that one of the members, of the fourth member, remained in the tank. And the only thing that went through my mind were the psukim in the Torah that were describing Avram Avinu jumping into the fiery furnace. And I went in and grabbed my friend out and I saved his life. And the Chamalibutz turns to the class and says, should I have told him, you know, it really, there is no such pasuk? <laughs> this, this is the, the point of the, the point that was trying to make is the Midrashim is what gives the inspiration to the pasukim. And whether, and at a certain time, point in life, the Midrash, we, our students should be told this is Pshat and this is Midrash, but not to be Mevater on the Midrash because there's so much value in the Midrash. In addition to that, Nechama strongly held that sometimes the Darshanim understood the Pshat of the Psukim much better than the Pashtanim themselves. And I want you to look in source number 8. And I, I'll, I'll read it. You, you have it in Hebrew. I'll, I'll uh, paraphrase in English. They are, however, Midrashim that are set out in the first place to explain the paragraph, unraveling the deeper layers of the text and what can be read between the lines. That You don't have this in front of you. They aim in particular to help the reader use his imagination in filling in the lacuna caused by the terse language of the original. The Torah uses very minimalistic words. The Midrash helps us with our imagination. They do this by means of anecdote, parable, dialogues, which convert the abstract to something emotional. These Midrashim provide a very good means of teaching scripture, especially when you want your students not merely to understand concepts, but also to identify themselves personally with the text. And if you look on page um, number four, on the top of the page, Nechama writes, Nitkavanti lahavot. 
את חשיבותם של רבותינו, מפרשי התורה, לגילוי המאור שבדברי התורה כפי פשוטם. This is what we're going to be doing in our next example. She says, I set out to show that Chazal in the Medrash are the ones that really understood the true light of the Pshat. גם של אותם המפרשים אשר הקהל, אף הקהל שלנו, במשמע, נוהג לחשוב שהם רחוקים מפשוטו של מקרא. Even those פירושים that our community say, אך, that's just the Medrash. ואינם אלא דרשנים במעלה. Sometimes they really understand, they really nailed it, the דרשנים. מפיהם יכולים אנו ללמוד, from Chazal we can learn how to read an in-depth reading, leads Bonan to examine and understand every segment of a pasuk, every word, ibdirei Elohim chayim. And now let's read in depth one of the examples where she demonstrates this idea. Open up to source number 10, and also um, open up to Bamidbar, chapter 11, Parakid Aleph, verse 5, Pasuk 8. I'll start reading from Pasuk Dalet, from verse 4. Perek Yud Aleph, Pasuk Dalet. Ve'ha'asafsuf asher b'kirbo. Hit'avu ta'ava g'dola. Hit'avu ta'ava. Vayashuvu vayivku gam b'nei Yisrael vayomru mi achilenu basar. Very timely Pasuk. So my kids say all week long in nine days. Zacharnu et hadaga asher nochal b'mitzrayim chinam et hakishuim v'et ha'avatichim v'et hechatzir v'et ha'pzalim v'et ha'shumim Kishuim, Rashi explains that. He writes there, cucumbers. Chatzir is, is not hay, the, the modern chatzir. Chatzir is probably leek that's used. And all the commentators ask the same question. What are they talking about? Free food? They didn't even get free straw. Let's read on number 10, the Midrash. Zachan wet hadagash renochal b'mitzrayim. V'chiyesh ba'inyan shahayu ha'mitzrim notnim lahem dagim b'chinam? V'alok v'anemar. ועצל לכו עבדו ותבן לא יינתן לכם אם תבן לא היו נותנים להם בחינם דגים היו נותנים להם בחינם so they're, giving, they're not giving them straw but they're giving them fish and then the medrash rashi quotes ומה אני אומר חינם? חינם מן המצוות what do I mean חינם? they had no obligation is that shot or drush? So before we try to understand if that's pshat or trash, let's go to through the different parshanim and see what the different parshanim have to say about this chinam. Ibn Ezra, what is chinam? Chinam doesn't really mean free. Bizol ki'iluhu chinam. It's something that's very cheap, you say. Chinam, it's, it's practically free, right? You would say practically free. It's not that they were giving them free fish, but fish were cheap in Egypt. Ramban, V'tam asher nochal b'mitzrayim chinam, lefi pshuto, ki hayu hadayagim b'mitzrayim, ma'abidim otam nimshok hadagim shenechazim b'metsuda. One of the jobs of the slaves are, they worked as fishermen, they helped the fishermen. Uva michmarot, v'ayu notzinim lehem min hadagim, ki min hadagim kol porshei michmarot. 
So the fish had to get free fish. When you work, you get, they work as fishermen and they receive fish. Maybe Ramban later on writes, they, they receive the icky fish, they, the, the small fish, the ones that aren't going to sell on the market, they receive. And what about the vegetables? These vegetables, these aren't the, these aren't the, the fruits and vegetables that are selling for 20 shekel a kilo. These are the very, very cheap vegetables that they have a lot of in Egypt. They didn't even have to go to buy them in the market. They're just, they're very accessible. You just have to dig. These are, many of them are root vegetables. So Chinam, he says, literally, they did get it free. It means free because they were accessible. Abarbanel. He tells us some, um, tells us a little bit about the way of life in Egypt. That when the Nile would overflow, people customarily near their homes would make these little ditches, and the water with the fish would go into the ditches, and then the water would go back, and the heavier fish would weigh down. So everyone had fish. Fish is something that everyone had free in Egypt. And then he talks about the vegetables. He says the, uh, the, the uh, watermelons, the tzali, he wasn't a nutritionist, Abar Banel. He are, they, these are the unhealthy vegetables. And he says that uh, the real healthy vegetables, that they didn't get. What are they saying? They got garlic. As I said, Abar Banel's uh, time. Shadal. Shmuel David Lutzato, another commentator that Nechamali was appreciated very much, says the 19th century Italian commentator, Chinam, Mamash, unlike Ibn Ezra that says Chinam is very cheap, he says Mamash. When you have slaves, you don't let your slaves die of hunger because then you won't have a slave. So of course they gave him to feed, to feed them. And what do they give them to eat? They give them cheap things to eat. Herodotus quotes that on one pyramid in Egypt that the king said, gives a list of all the expenses of food he had to provide the slaves. Also, it's possible the Egyptians weren't, didn't eat, weren't fish eaters. And maybe that's why they would just give it to them, the fish that they don't eat. So these are all the, um, the common, uh, what we would call Pashtanim. And then the Chamalibuits brings the back to the Chazal that Rashi quoted, which seemed to us at first glance, Chinam min vote. We all understood, Pash, all, every single Pashtan that we read explained Chinam as to do with finance, real, literally free or very cheap. Connect, something connected to the, va- the value of the, of the, of the fish. The Medrash. Chinam in Hamitzvot. Nechama quotes. Ulam nir elanu. It seems to us that Chazal really saw the, understood the depth of these psukim. Chazal he'emiku lirot. This, all this crying and kvetching, wanting to go back to Egypt, is that because you didn't have your sardines? Is that because you didn't have a cucumber? Ha'im Does that the cause of this great uproar? Ha'im 
העוסקים בדגים ובקישואים ובבצלים, מאוויים כמוסים אחרים גדולים מאלה? Should we not see what's really behind these cries? Yadua, it is well known that a community, Shetzibor, can accept upon himself poverty, suffering, with great eagerness if they have a goal, that they identify with the goal. If they have a vision and if they have a goal, they will accept any hardship. And they identify with a person is willing to give up everything. Give up his assets. Give up his, uh, his comfort. Give up his health. Give up, if, if he has it for, for a goal that he believes in. But likewise, it is also well known when a person does not identify with the goal, even the smallest hardship becomes, in the words of Nechama, a great mountain. Or in the immediately it outbursts the kvetching, the complaining, the demanding, the criticism, and every small hardship becomes impossible. One who looks from the outside says, What? You're kvetching over the air conditioning. You're kvetching over this. You're catching over small things. You're catching because you didn't like lunch because of this. But he doesn't realize that's not what he's catching about. What's really going on in the heart. And that's what Chazal zoomed in on. Why do they say Chinam? They're not complaining. What bothers them is not. They don't miss the fish and the cucumbers. Whether they were given literally or not, or, or cheap, whether they were fresh or, or, or rotten, that's not what they're missing here. They are, what, they, what they don't want, they do not want the moral obligation. That's what bothers them. And they, they prefer the life that's free of any moral obligation. And according to Chazal, that's the reason for all of their kvetching and all of them complaining. Last three lines of page four. If we compare Chazal's medrash to the Pashtanim, we will see Barer, how the, Pash, the Pashtan only saw the outer layer of the Pasuk. That which the eye sees. The Darshan sees that which is Deeply hidden, etakamus, that which is hidden in the words and hidden in the hearts. The yachsofet hashikva muka, hakshat yerael la einaim, the hadrash yerael la levav. The pashtan only sees that which is external. The drash has X-ray vision and sees into the heart. Um, an interesting. Uh, this is not connected to the methodology of Nechama. This is an interesting point that's worthwhile to mention. There's an argument among the scholars whether or not Nechama is considered a commentator or just one who collected commentaries and made her comments. Uh, Professor Simone, uh, in an article that he had written about Nechama, he, he said how, what a great loss it was to Amisrael that Nechama never wrote a commentary. 
the truth is, Nechama was a comment, was, was a commentator. She had many of her own chidushim. I think we've already seen here many of her own chidushim. But I want to share with you an article that was not printed of Nechama Leibowitz, um, which, uh, she loved very much this article and this topic. And the title of the article was, Vayomer, Vayomer. That was the topic. Now generally, in Tanakh, how do we know when speakers switch? By the word Vayomer, how do we know when if Yosef starts and then the brothers, Vayomer, and then it says another Vayomer, and then Vayomer. So we go, we know to go back and forth, back and forth between the speakers. Nehama points out a phenomena, says sometimes it is the same speaker speaking, and it's still, even though he's, he's speaking, it says Vayomer twice. Let's give uh, a few examples for this. In uh, Bereshit Perek Tetvav, Chapter 15, verse 5. Okay. When God is about to promise Avram, his promise of uh, the descendants. Now listen to the Vayomer, Vayomer. Vayomer, who's speaking? God. Vayomer lo. Who said the second Vayomer? Also God. So why do we need this Vayomer, Vayomer? So Nechama here offers a, a suggestion, the Vayomer, Vayomer here. So if the Pasuk would best been read with one Vayomer. Listen to this. Just with one Vayomer. We miss the entire drama that's going on between God and Moshe. God tells God and Avram, look at the, at the skies. And Avram looks, and he breathes it all in. And he looks, and he doesn't understand what's the meaning. And after he's, while he's looking at all the kochavim, God says, Ko We would have missed that great effect if God would say, go out, look outside, and obviously, like, see the stars? That's what your children are going to be like. We miss the, going in through the understanding, internalizing, appreciating the steps if it's just in one amira. So that's uh, one example. Another nice example is from Parashat Matot. Once again, open up to Parashat Matot. Paraklamid Bet. Sefer B'Midbar. Okay, they see Bnei Ruven, Bnei God, they see all the great, uh, this great land. So this is a, God had uh, conquered this for us. This is a land of uh, this is a good land, and we have lots of uh, there's a grazing land, and we have lots of flock. But they're in the middle of their set. Why do we need that extra vayomru? It could have just continued. It could have just gone. Without that second Vayomru, what does that second Vayomru add to us? 
And here I'm going to read from Nechama's article. When the two tribes came with an unimpure conscience to ask of Moshe to obliviate them of their obligation to conquer the land, they knew in deep inside this was not right. They knew Shabakasha Therefore, they have to ask in such a way that maybe Moshe will offer on his own. Say, we have lots of flock, and this is a good grazing place. And uh, and he expect him to say, what do they expect him to say right now? Great, go ahead and take it. And that's why, but the, Moshe doesn't. Says Moshe crinkles his, eyebr- his, his eyebrows, and, he says, and then he immediately say, okay, you know what? Um, they, they see Moshe's not about to offer, and then they have to go and express exactly what they wanted. And Nechama says that that's the Bayomer Bayomer. Bayomer is their first Bayomer. They're waiting for a response. They don't get the response, and they need to uh, continue. And I see I need, I need to uh, end. And um, I just want to end with two, two quick quotes of Nechama Leibowitz. Um, also, from what we started with, with her introduction for her, with, at a speech that she gave in honor of 10 years of Gileonot. And she's, I'll read it in Hebrew and quickly in uh, English. And I want to read this out in Kfar Etzion. She mentions the Jews of Farazion, who between 1942 and 1948 were studying Gilyonot until it fell, and those who went into captivity from the those who were taken as hostages to Jordan requested the Red Cross to deliver to them the Gilyonot of Nechamalibuitz, because what you want when you're in Shevi is something that warms up the heart. That's what warmed up their hearts. And had Nechama been here today, standing on the stage in my place, perhaps she would have said the same thing she said 150 years ago, 50 years, 50 years ago, when she described the different types of people who studied her sheets. And her words, just as they were true then, were equally true now. I look with respect, and just imagine Nechama saying this, I look with respect and, and with admiration and great joy upon all these elderly youth, mothers, girls, teachers, clerks, workers, veterans, New immigrants, members of all communities, tens and thousands and thousands of thousands of people studying Torah for its own sake. Not, not for diplomas, not for exams, not for prizes, nor for credits, no tra- nor for training, nor for income tax, t- tax cuts. Only for the joy of study Torah. Yehizich Rabbaruch.